wanted no such honor. He had come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, throughout his earthly life and ministry, Jesus was clothed with humility. He was born of a poor woman and spent the first 30 years of his life in a carpenter's house. He was followed by poor, poor companions, mostly fishermen. He was poor in his manner of living. He once said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When he went on the Sea of Galilee, he was in a borrowed boat. When he rode into Jerusalem, it was on a borrowed donkey. And when he was buried, it was in a borrowed tomb. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Heavenly Father, this morning where we, may we meditate upon Christ's example now before us. How common our pride and ambition and high-mindedness how rare our humility and self-sacrifice. The world and Satan tell us to take every opportunity to promote ourselves. We are to seize occasions for the recognition of ourselves and manipulate our way into the center of attention. But there is another way, Heavenly Father, your way, the way of our Savior. Rather than striving for recognition and influential positions, may we seek to put others first. May we seek to cultivate humility. The Lord, as you well know, that does not come naturally to us. And Lord, may we understand this one of the many paradoxes of the Christian life. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning, may we all strive to humble ourselves and bring glory to you. And Lord, we pray this day also for our nation and all those in authority over us. Heavenly Father, in the offices of government, the halls of Congress, the courtrooms of the judges, may one sit higher than the rulers of earth. May you be in those council chambers and in their deliberations. May you guide them in the paths of righteousness. And Father, we uphold Pastor Jerry during the worship service this morning. May your spirit strengthen and encourage him. May he feel your hand upon him. And we ask now your blessing upon our tithes and offerings. Use them and use us in the building of the kingdom. And now, to the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus and who will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen us to him be glory forever and ever. As we pray the prayer our Savior taught us to pray. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The ushers, please come forward.
Jerry, this is not an attempt to force you out of the pulpit, but I would like if Stacy would join us up front here. <laughs> Jerry and Stacy, as you may know, October was Pastor Appreciation Month. And what the parishioners here at Grace Presbyterian did was write you notes and cards showing our appreciation for all you've done for us. So I will present this to you. I'll count to see who got more when we, I'm just kidding. Last week we were able to sing a confession of faith. This week I would like you to join me. We'll confess our sins and then we'll sing our assurance of pardon and go right into our next song. So if you would, join me as we confess our sins realizing that we all are equal at the throne of grace. We all come with the exact same amount of need, and yet we all find the same favor when we come. Pray this with me. Father in heaven, do not hold us responsible for the guilty deeds of our forefathers. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we have become very low. Help us, God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and save us and forgive our sins for the sake of your name. I invite you to come to the throne of grace as we sing.
Amen. You may be seated. Are you guys going down? Are you guys going down? Yeah. They will stay if you want them to sing more. I mean, that's, I could take a, a quick vote. What a blessing to have them up here leading and helping with us. And if you would like to be a part of that, we encourage you, come and help us as we praise the name of the Lord. I want you to turn in your Bibles, as you do, to Mark chapter 6, and again, I, I will speak for my whole family as we say thank you um, for pastor appreciation. You guys are always more gracious to us than we could probably ever be to you all, and uh, you've become a family to us and friends and able to lift us and pray for us, and uh, I know when I come, you guys get one person to help you, and when we come, we get 150 strong to help us and so there's no way we could say thank you enough but I do want you to keep an eye on Stacy that she's not reading while I'm preaching <laughs> I don't know open those together John chapter 6 or Mark 6 I'm sorry is where we're getting to the part that Mark sandwiched a story of history in the middle of what it meant to go out and share your faith last week I challenged you as much as I challenged myself are you only doing half of what God's called you to do? And so this morning, I challenge you why so many people don't do the other half. And that is because there is a great cost to discipleship, to following Christ. That doesn't always mean it happens to every person. Not everybody is treated the same. And if you're like me, I am constantly saying to myself on the days that I feel pitied or overworked or too much happening, it doesn't take me long to look around and realize, Lord, my load is nowhere near what you have placed on others to carry. But when you have to carry that, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a child, a premature death, a lost pregnancy, a ruined career, a broken home, runaway children, court cases, psychological uh, issues. We go down the list and the list of all the things that take place in our lives. We begin to realize that none of those become excuses of facing the true cost of discipleship. Mark as he is sharing the story of Jesus finally saying, I trained you and I'm sending you out to do the work of what kingdom work is, inserts into the middle of the disciples or the apostles going out and coming back to report to him, inserts the historical account of what happened to John the Baptist. It is also recorded in Josephus, the historian of the church. You can read it there. The Gospels have different perspectives. I could give you the rundown of the whole research if you want to. There are all kinds of things in this passage that if you read like I do, you catch it. Like when he mentions King Herod, and you all know that this is Herod Antipas, who was never a what? A king. So, but what Mark is doing is addressing it as though they wanted to be. That is why he acted as one. That is why he treated John the way he did. That's why he rewarded his wife the way she wanted. 
When we talk about the party that he's throwing, the scripture is many times called a birthday party. It is the exact same word for birthday as it is used for a coronation party. That's why it probably lists all kinds of the great leaders and the things that were there. But we call it a birthday party. But what we do know is that this happens, and Mark inserts it for a Holy Spirit-led, inspired reason that in the midst of sending out the apostles to do what God has called them to do, and they come back to report, he feels it necessary to say what happened to one who was faithfully preaching the word of God. And I wish I could promise you this morning as I begin to read the text that you are safe and secure as a Christian. That you're going to live a long, happy life. People will treat you a little bit better because you're a Christian. They're going to reward you with many things because you call yourself a servant. And the truth of it is your life is going to be much easier than anybody else's because you are a follower of Christ. Oh, how I wish I could tell you that. But if I were to be honest, and I will, it's going to be the opposite. It's probably going to be a little more criticism than those around you receive. People probably feel a little more open to express themselves than what others would. People are probably going to treat you the ways they wouldn't treat others because the Christians are supposed to be forgiving. Long story short, some people are going to persecute you. And some of you may even give your life for not rejecting Jesus Christ. Mark said, God called you, proskaline, and then he sent you, apostelline. And for many of us, we've never gone because of the fear of what will happen if we go. Mark says this, chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard about it, talking about all that Jesus had been doing and the apostles. For his name had become well known, and the people were saying, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others were saying that he is Elijah, and others were saying that he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard about it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent men and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias and his wife and his brother Philip because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he had been protecting him. And when he had heard him, he was very perplexed, and yet he used to enjoy listening to him. An opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday or this party, held a banquet for all the nobles, the military commanders, the leading people of Galilee. And when the daughter herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. He swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? She said, the head of John the Baptist. 
Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry because of the oaths at this dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard about this, they came and carried away his body and laid it in a tomb. The cost of just being faithful to Jesus Christ. And there was more to it than just that. He wasn't just proclaiming the kingdom. You'll have to understand the history as it comes along. Write these down. I'll help you as we go along. But when we start about talking about Herod, again, let me give you the background. This is not Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. When the Great died, his sons inherited parts of the kingdoms, and they were called tetrarchs over the areas. So this was never a king, and he never had the authority to give half of his kingdom. The ironic part of the story is you have a king who was so fearful of somebody who was holy and righteous that it intrigued him. He couldn't kill him because when he would speak about the things that were truthful, it would irk him. And at the same time, it would catch his attention and it would bring him in. He wanted to know more. There was something about this. And yet he would promise this girl up to half of the kingdom, which no Roman emperor would ever let him do. An empty promise. And it leads under the providential care of God's child becoming what Jesus said we should all be willing to do for him. The cost of true discipleship. We're living in a world right now and I'm not going to take sides on which war and which country and how many. What I'd like to tell you is it's amazing of what's taking place right now when all of a sudden we find ourselves asking the question, just where do we stand and on what values? Because war always brings about the understanding of what we're willing to fight for, what we're willing to hold on to, what it is we will not relinquish, even until death. One of the Interviews on TV of the newscasts, which caught my heart, was one of the ladies on the border of Ukraine. When the war had broken out, I'm sure you saw it, and they were asking her in the newscast, why don't you just flee this area? Houses were being totally destroyed. The place was a wreck. She lived in a shanty-type shack, and it was just her and one other friend. And she was right there on the end. They said, why would you not leave? And her comment was, I'd rather die here in what I have lived for all my life than to run away and be safe. When it comes to Jesus Christ, in the midst of the battle and the raging of the wars, and the issues that we face and the stances we must take and the rights we must fight for and those we must reject, and the principles that we stand and try to push forward against the principles we should try to reject. We live in a world in which we proclaim a kingdom that is coming, and yet we live in a world that doesn't want it. And we find ourselves, as even the Bible says, caught in the midst of a war, fighting in God's army, when so many would say, why don't you just run away and go to the places that's safe? 
so you don't have to worry about it. Maybe some of us should say, I'd rather stay with Jesus and die for that which I have always lived for than to run away and be safe. You see, the story that Mark puts in here, first of all, understand this. Number one, what does it mean to be a cost, a true cost? It is we're here to proclaim the kingdom. That's why John the Baptist comes alive again, because they realized that when they beheaded him and was killed, this is the historical account, there was no way to stop the truth that was spreading. And this Jesus that is now out proclaiming this kingdom, he sees as only another resurrection of the same truth that he tried to put away before. And what a reminder that we too are here to proclaim the kingdom of God. The true cost of discipleship is to not just treat people kindly. The true cost of discipleship is to not just talk about things that are uplifting. The true cost is that we must, like Paul said in Ephesians, when he prayed with the spiritual armor and said, Lord, give me the boldness to speak as I ought to speak. Give me the boldness to stand up for the kingdom when nobody else will. Give me the boldness to stand up for the true king when nobody else wants to. John came, and the history tells us he came to proclaim the coming kingdom of God. That's what Mark says in the very beginning. So I ask you quickly, in the cost of discipleship, you may say to yourself this morning, it's always been pretty easy for us. I mean, we've always had a, a great life, good things always provided, things have been well, we've never really had to face anything bad, it's been serving Christ has not really been much of an ordeal. And of course, the next question always comes, as always, have you been proclaiming the kingdom of God? Have you confronted others about who it is they're living for, or is that someone else's job? Are we in the battle that's raging against Satan, or are we just moving to the places where we can keep peace? So all of a sudden we realize John, we realize in this cost is because he's proclaiming the kingdom, but also he reminds us we must prepare ourselves for the king. When John first came, it was make way the straight, make the way straight, prepare yourselves. It's not just about proclaiming the kingdom to others, it's about also proclaiming the kingdom to who? Yourself. The biggest thing was to learn that I, too, have to be changed. I, too, need this kingdom. I, too, need the king of this kingdom. I, too, am confronted with these truths. I, too, must confess those. Not only are we proclaiming it to others, but we must ourselves be prepared. We, too, must be fit for the kingdom. And then the story picks up where all of a sudden we realize, when does it really start pressing us? It's when John went to Herod, and he said, what you're doing is not right. It actually comes from Leviticus. You can go back and read it. 
It's the story in Leviticus 20 where all of a sudden we realize not only do we proclaim the kingdom, we must prepare ourselves, but folks, we must protest the things that are against the kingdom. The part we none of us like. None of us like that we have to stand up and pick out the things that are not right. We live in a world in which people have turned their head to the evils that take place every day. When people are mocked, ridiculed, shunned, treated differently. When people are literally today beaten in the streets, stoned. And people turn their head. Why? They're afraid to what? Get involved. I'm not asking you this morning to join the protests of D.C. You of all residents around the country have probably experienced more in the protesting atmosphere than any place else in the United States. And I'm not asking you to join the protests in the sense of hurting others. I'm asking you to join the protest in proclaiming the kingdom and standing up and going against those who are living in sin. Just when do you tell others what they're doing is biblically wrong? You don't have to tell them that what they're doing is illegal. Folks, there's a lot of things in this world that are legal. But just because they're legal doesn't make them what? Right. You ought to know that as times are changing. The world is changing we're allowing people to do more and more, have more and more. Relationships are changing. Home lives are changing. Relationships from marriages on down to unions to all kinds of organizational structures. Everything is changing, and it's all legal. It's legally right to sin. And nobody is going to confront you legally just because you sin. But I will tell you the sad part of it is when the church stops confronting sin because the world stops confronting sin, just where does that leave us? But if you protest and stand up, you might find the same fate as John. For other countries already have that. I've shared with you stories already where one of our missionaries in Canada, as we were sharing with pastors, told me the story, and I've shared it, that they are no longer allowed in Canada to confront their children in public without using positive terminology and correction. You're no longer allowed to reprimand them or to belittle them in any way, shape, or form in a public manner. If your child is stealing from the counter as they pass by, you're not allowed to be in a negative overtone to tell them that that is wrong. You're supposed to find ways to change their behavior or the culture, the police, the buildings, the atmosphere. Anyone involved has the right to turn you in for the way that you've treated your children. In some countries, if you do confess Jesus Christ, you're hunted out. If you stand up for Christ, you're standing up against the leaders. I could go on and on. I used to love when James Kennedy would preach in Coral Ridge. 
Sometimes I would learn more history and the things that went on when he would preach. I would get into the depths of his stories and I would realize just how blessed we are in America to have the freedom to live the way we want to live. Now catch this. And to express our own freedoms in any almost way, shape, or form as long as we're not infringing on the rights of others. Let me rephrase that. You're allowed to live in as much sin as you want to. Just don't knock others for living in the sin they want to. You see, that's what happens when Christians are asked to stand up. When Jesus sent the apostles out to go and proclaim the kingdom, he wasn't just saying, hey, be a good example. Walk around and just be nice to people. He was actually like John. He was the one that forerun for Jesus. Do you remember when they leaped in the womb together at birth, when Elizabeth and Mary got together? It was the story of one who had come, and John, this prophet from the old, shows up and starts proclaiming a kingdom and telling people to prepare themselves, and then he begins to protest the sin that's in their lives. I won't go into the details. It wouldn't be fair, but my family knows. I know. We all have them in our own families when sometimes the hardest time to protest, if you wish, or to stand up for what is right is when it involves confronting your own family. If I do this, maybe they won't come home and visit anymore. If I'm not careful with what I say, they may turn and make things worse. In our case, your case, other cases... It's better to just let it go, and hopefully over time, God will what? Work it out. The cost of true discipleship. When John confronted the sin, it put him in prison. It wasn't just that he was beheaded. He lived in prison, and he was kept alive because... Even Herod says he was intrigued by the stories. I wonder sometimes if he would call him up. We don't get that story from Josephus. But while he was kept in prison for the terms until it was asked for, I wonder if he would sometimes call him up almost like a seer and say, well, hey, John, what you got to say about me now? And it would intrigue him because he hated to hear what he would hear. But he also had this side that wanted to hear what he had to say. Oh, I just pray that as Christians we stand together when Christ comes back. We celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly, saying we proclaim him until he comes again. And when he comes again, we stand in line together at the banquet feast, hopefully not next to the one who says, well, why didn't you ever confront me for what I was doing? James Dobson, years ago, I'm sure you've read a lot of his stuff, wrote one of the hardest books when he said, love must be tough. Tough love. Tough love comes when you have to confront someone's sin. Not because you're comparing them to yourself. You see, the average response, the minute you say to somebody that you shouldn't do that, is to immediately not talk about the truth, but to talk about what? 
you. Do you see, if we can lower the standard, now that may be hard for you to believe, folks, but if you measure yourself to me, you're lowering your standard. There's nothing in Jerry's life that you want to be able to say, well, if you could just be like Jerry. Do you see, that's the easy go, especially as a pastor. If I talk to someone and say, hey, look, the way that you're living right now is not wholesome in Scripture. Well, what about your life? You've said things before, and you've done things before, and I bet your children aren't perfect. And the next thing you know, we're talking about my life and not whose? Theirs. We're talking about everybody else's life and not theirs. You see, it's the master art of deceit. It's the father of lies. It's the angel of light in disguise that works through his ways to be able to divert you from the cost of true discipleship. Let's be honest. John probably knew that he had nothing to lose with Herod. And maybe in your life, there's someone that what else could you possibly lose that's more important than watching them spend eternity in hell? For the sake of a few good years here on earth, for the sake of a few more decades of solitude and silence, no bumps and hurdles, we'll just remain silent so we can finish peacefully. J.R. Hermas, whose wife built the nursing program at Evansville at the USI, he ran nursing homes for years. He's in his 90s. He's still alive. He still calls and asks what churches he can support to do things with. He's in his mid-90s now living there, and he has made it very plain and clear he's ready to go home because he feels the best days of serving Christ on this earth are over. JR, do you really think it's going to get that bad? And I remember him telling me, I don't think it's the circumstances that are so bad. It's the people who call themselves Christians. You can do like I did. Because we call ourselves Christians in the workplace, at home, at church on the mission field, and we wonder why it is we have less conversions to Christianity now than ever before. It's because we have a lot of people who are out there answering the call to go, but aren't standing up for the true cost of discipleship. You must proclaim the kingdom. You must prepare yourself as well. And you've got to protest against sin. That's what we're here to do. And not only that, but Jesus is just like John, becomes, if I can use it this way, you're going to be persecuted. Write that down. Keep it down there. Place it there. When you protest the truth, you will be persecuted. Jesus made it clear, if they'll persecute me, they're going to what? Persecute you. And so all of a sudden we realize that here, Herod, afraid now that the truth has come back to life, that this whole kingdom issue is right back on the surface, that somebody else is now bringing it forward, is no different than now that Jesus was dead and gone in the world's eyes, and that thing has all been taken care of. 
Well, now we just have to squash all these people that are trying to keep this thing going. And that's up to you. It's up to you whether or not you'll take the true cost of discipleship and stand up for what Christ asked. I can give you a scary part of it because just as John was seen as the forerunner of Jesus, he was persecuted for standing up for sin. Jesus becomes, if you wish, the author or forerunner, finisher of our faith as he was punished for our sins. And now we are the forerunners or the portrait of those who come behind us as we are now being punished for what Jesus asked us to do. Just how many people will literally be beheaded? I don't know, but I can tell you here this morning as I encourage you to count the cost. We're told in the parables that it is better for you to count the cost and to never start building than to build a home and stop halfway through and to mock the one who is building. We're told in Revelation chapter 7, you can turn there if you want, the multitudes of people that were standing around the throne of those who were taken because they served Jesus Christ. After these things, as John shares, he says, I looked and behold a multitude of which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes, peoples, and languages were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to the Lord our God. If you were to go a little bit farther into Revelation, John writes this. I saw the thrones and those that sat on them. Judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of all those that had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God the cost of true discipleship is that one day we spend eternity with the multitudes that cannot be numbered, with those that are surrounded on the thrones and have been given the rights because they have been beheaded for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have become martyrs for the kingdom. So in the middle of all of this, Mark writes, squashes it together, and asks us, have you counted the cost? Are you willing to proclaim the kingdom? Are you willing to go ahead and prepare yourself the same way? Are you willing to protest the sin that is all about us, regardless of of all of the persecution you're going to face. And finally, are you willing to join and become a precedent for all behind us in worshiping at the throne as the souls of those who are faithful?
count the cost. A few years here, a few years of peace, tranquility, success in the eyes of others, or an eternity with those that have given their lives for the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this short insert that your Holy Spirit gives Mark. Lord, the place it puts us this morning for all of us. Lord, I, I humbly pray as a pastor that so many times as a pastor, I have failed to proclaim the kingdom correctly. I have not stood for the sin that I saw, to rise up against it and protest it. There's times I've even hidden the sin in my heart and haven't even prepared my own life as I'm trying to preach to others. And Father, I know deep down in of the hardships that I, my family, and friends have faced doesn't measure at all to the persecution of your children who have stood on the truth forever. Help me. Help me as you helped the Apostle Paul to speak boldly as we ought to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. As Mark teaches us and John knows, as Paul knew, there's no way to do it but standing in Christ and his strength alone. And so if you would stand with us as we sing our closing hymn, you'll see it there in the bulletin. It's called In Christ Alone. Let's sing that together.
Amen. If you'll receive a benediction, and before I give it, if you rejoice in having Lois fill in and play for us this morning, would you say amen? amen. What, a, what a blessing to have the talent and the abilities in our church to do that. And if you would receive the benediction, Paul just simply said, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And God's children said, amen. amen. Have a great Lord's Day.